0: Joseph, somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean, 1939, 22 days from home. Joseph watched his sister splashing around happily in the swimming pool on A-deck. Other kids chased each other around the promenade, watched movies, played shuffleboard. For as much as he'd wanted to grow up, Joseph wished now that he could join them, be a little kid again, cheerfully oblivious to what was going on around him. But he wasn't a kid anymore. He had responsibilities, like keeping his sister and his mother safe. Papa had told him what the concentration camps were like. He couldn't let that happen to Ruthie and his mother. Are you ready? It was Posner. He stood in the shadow of a smokestack, looking around nervously. Joseph nodded. He had agreed to help take over the ship. He had to do something, and this was the only thing he could do. What about Sheendek and his firemen? Joseph asked as they walked. We've got a distraction for them down on D-deck, but we have to move fast. The rest of the group came together near the social hall. There were ten men, including Joseph, and they all carried metal candlesticks and pieces of pipe. Some of the men were Papa's age, like Posner, and some of them were in their twenties. Joseph was by far the youngest. Ten men, Joseph thought. A minion. Ten Jews come together not to worship, but to mutiny. Posner put a small length of lead pipe in Joseph's hand, and suddenly the weight of what Joseph was about to do was very real. Lead on, Posner said. Joseph took a deep breath. There was no turning back now. He led his fellow mutineers into the maze of crew corridors. Just outside the bridge, in the chart room where all the maps were stored, They came across Ostermeyer, the first officer. He looked up from the map cabinet with surprise, but before he could do anything, Posner and one of the other men grabbed him and pushed him through the door to the bridge. Joseph was startled by how rough they were being with Ostermeyer, but he tried to swallow his fear. Taking over the ship wasn't going to be easy, and this was only the start. There weren't as many people on the bridge as there had been when Joseph visited, just one officer and three sailors. The sailor at the ship's helm saw them first, and he let go of the steering wheel to die for an alarm. One of the passengers got to him first, slamming into the helmsman and sending him tumbling to the floor. The mutineers quickly surrounded the other sailors, threatening them with their makeshift clubs. And they had done it. Just like that, they had taken the bridge. Joseph's heart raced as he looked around, wondering what was next. Stretched out before them was the great green blue Atlantic Ocean, and beyond that, still days away, Germany and the Nazis. Up on the little platform at the back of the room, the steering wheel teetered back and forth, and Joseph wondered crazily if he should jump up there and turn the ship around himself. Send for the captain, Posner told the first officer. Warily, Ostermeyer went to the ship's intercom and summoned Captain Schroeder to the bridge. As soon as Captain Schroeder stepped onto the bridge, he understood what was happening. He spun to leave, but Joseph and one of the other men blocked his exit. Who's in charge here? Captain Schroeder asked. What do you mean by all this? Posner stepped forward. We mean to save our lives by taking over the ship, he said, and sailing it to any other country but Germany. Captain Schroeder put his hands behind his back and walked to the middle of the bridge. He looked out at the ocean, not Posner. The other passengers will not support you, and my crew will overpower you, he said matter-of-factly. All you are doing is laying yourselves open to a charge of piracy. Posner and the others looked around at each other nervously. Joseph couldn't believe they were so easily losing their resolve. We'll hold you here as hostages, Joseph said. They'll have to do as we say. Even Joseph was surprised he'd spoken up but his words seemed to put a little more steel back in the mutineer's resolve. Captain Schroeder turned to look at Joseph. "'The crew will obey only me,' he said calmly, "'and I will give no order, no matter what you do, "'that will take my ship off its set course, "'and without that order you can do nothing. "'What will you do, pilot the ship yourself?' "'Joseph blushed and stared at the ground.' remembering his crazy urge to take the wheel when he didn't even know how it worked or where to go. Captain Schroeder helped his fallen helmsman back to his feet and led him to the steering wheel. The man was still shaking from the attack, but he took the helm and straightened the ship on course. "'You have done enough already for me to prefer serious charges against you,' Captain Schroeder said, still frustratingly even-keeled. "'If I do... I can assure you that you will most certainly be taken back to Germany, and you know what that means. Joseph steamed. He did know what that meant, but did Captain Schroeder know? Really know? How many Germans really understood what was happening in the concentration camps? Joseph knew because his papa had told him, had shown him when he jumped overboard and tried to kill himself. Joseph wasn't about to let his mother and sister end up in one of those camps. "'You would do that to us?' one of the men asked the captain. "'You are doing it to yourselves,' Schroeder said. "'Listen, I understand and sympathize with your desperation.' Posner huffed. "'You have no idea what we've been through, any of us!' Captain Schroeder nodded. "'No, you're right. But no matter what's been done to you, what you're doing now is a real criminal act. By law, I should have you all thrown in the brig.' but I'm willing to overlook all this if you leave the bridge right now and give me your word you will take no such further action. Joseph scanned the faces of his co-conspirators and saw only panic, fear, surrender. No, Joseph told them. No, he told Captain Schroeder. My father told me what happened to him in those camps. I can't let that happen to my mother and my little sister. We can't go back to Germany. The first officer took that moment to try to pull free from the men holding him. There was a struggle. The other sailors moved to help him, and the other mutineers flinched, ready to fight. Ostermeyer, no! Captain Schroeder commanded. Cease and desist. That's an order. The first officer froze, and Posner froze too, the lead pipe in his hand still raised in threat. Nobody moved. The captain raised his hands. "'I promise you, men,' he said quietly, his voice almost a whisper. "'I promise you on my honor as a sea captain "'that I will do everything possible to land you in England. "'I will run this ship aground there if I must, "'but you must stand down and promise me no further trouble.'" Posner lowered his pipe. "'Agreed,' he said. "'No, no!' Joseph wanted to argue, but everyone else agreed." Joseph threw his pipe to the ground and left without the other men. They were going back to Europe, and there was nothing he could do about it.
1: Isabel, off the coast of Florida, 1994, five days from home. They were going back to Cuba, and there was nothing any of them could do about it. So this was the last verse, Isabel thought. After everything they'd been through, after everything they'd lost, their climactic ending wasn't going to be climactic after all. Theirs wasn't a son cubano, with its triumphant finale. Theirs was a fugue, a musical theme that was repeated again and again without resolution. Their coda was to be forever homeless, even when returned to their own home. Forever refugees in their own land. The U.S. Coast Guard had found them. Heraldo, Isabel's mother said. But Papi didn't answer. He sat frozen with all the others as a bright white searchlight clicked on. A ship motor, a real motor, attached to a real propeller, roared to life. Heraldo. Mommy said again. It started. No, he said. It's over. For all of us. They're going to take us to Guantanamo. The searchlight swung around toward them. No, Mommy said. Hands on her bulging stomach, her voice tinged with alarm. No, I mean, it started. The baby's coming. The head of every single person in the little boat turned in surprise. Isabel sat down with a splash in the water. She didn't know what to think, how to feel. She'd been put through the ringer. The elation of leaving Cuba, the exhaustion of the storm, the horror of Ivan's death, the relief at seeing the lights of Miami, the despair of running into the Coast Guard ship and knowing they would never get to El Norte, and now... Her mother was having a baby. Isabel's baby brother. Isabel could only sit lifelessly and stare. She had nothing left to give. I'm not staying in that refugee camp at Guantanamo, behind a barbed wire fence, Lito said. That's just trading one prison for another. I'll go back to Cuba. Back to my home. Castro said he won't punish anyone who tried to leave. Unless he's changed his mind again, Amara said. It was Luis who saw the Coast Guard searchlight sweep past them on the water and point somewhere else. Maybe none of us will have to go to Guantanamo, Luis said. Look, they're not after us. The Coast Guard is after someone else. Isabel watched as the searchlight found another craft on the water a few hundred meters away. It was a raft full of refugees, just like them. More Cubans? Amara asked. It doesn't matter, Senor Castillo said. Now's our chance. Paddle for shore. Quickly. Isabel spared her mother a look, then grabbed a water jug carved into a scoop and started rowing as hard as she could. So did Lito, Amara, and the Castillos. But be quiet, Lito whispered. Sound carries a long way on the water. Oh! Isabel's mother cried. Shh, Teresa, Papi said, holding her hand. Don't have the baby yet. Wait until we get to Florida. Isabel's mother gritted her teeth and nodded, tears welling in her eyes. The lights of Miami got closer, but they were still so far away. Isabel glanced behind her. In the darkness, she could pick out the lights of the Coast Guard ship alongside another dark craft. Shadowy figures were moving back and forth between the two. They were taking the refugees on board to send them back to Cuba. Oh! Isabel's mother cried, her voice like a cannon shot in the quiet. Row! Row, Señor Castillo whispered. They were so close. Isabel could see which hotel rooms had their lights on and which were off, could hear bongos beating out a rhythm over the water, a rumba. The current's taking us north, Luis whispered. We're going to miss it. It doesn't matter. As long as we're standing on land, we're safe, Lito said his voice thin from exertion. We just can't be caught on the water. Row! Oh! Isabel's mother screamed, her voice booming out across the water. Weep, weep! The Coast Guard cutter made the same sound as before, and its searchlight lit up their little boat. They'd found them. No! Isabel's mother sobbed. No! No! I want to have my baby in El Norte. Row, Señor Castillo yelled, giving up entirely on being quiet. Behind them, the Coast Guard Cutter's motor roared to life. Isabel churned at the water, bending her flimsy jug paddle in her desperation. Tears streamed down her face. From sorrow or fear or exhaustion, she didn't know. All she knew was that they were still too far from shore. The Coast Guard ship was going to catch them before they reached Miami.
0: Joseph. Antwerp, Belgium, 1939. 36 days from home. The St. Louis was throwing a party even bigger than the one it had thrown the night before they'd reached Cuba. This one had the euphoria of more than 900 people who had been at death's door and were suddenly, miraculously saved. Belgium, Holland, France, and England had agreed to divide the refugees among them. None of the passengers were going back to Germany. Joseph's mother wasn't alone on the dance floor anymore. She was joined by dozens of couples, all dancing with giddy abandon. Joseph had even taken a turn around the floor with her. Passengers sang songs and played the piano with the orchestra, and one man who knew magic tricks entertained Ruthie and the other little kids in the corner of the social hall. In another corner, Joseph laughed as passengers took turns telling jokes. Most of the jokes were about taking holiday cruises to Cuba, but the best was when one of the passengers got up and read from the brochure that advertised the M.S. St. Louis. The St. Louis is a ship on which everyone travels securely and lives in comfort, he read. You could barely hear him over the hooting. There is everything one can wish for, the man read, gasping for breath. That makes life on board a pleasure. We hope you'll want to travel on the St. Louis again and again. Joseph laughed so hard he cried. If he never saw the M.S. St. Louis again in his life, he would die happy. The next morning, the ship docked at a pier in Antwerp, Belgium. Negotiations between Captain Schroeder and the four countries still took time, and it was a full day later when, under the grim portrait of Adolf Hitler, Joseph and his family joined the other passengers in the social hall again to find out where they would be going. Representatives from the four countries sat at a long table at the front of the hall, arguing over which passengers each would take. Every country wanted only the passengers with the best chances of getting accepted by America, so they could ship the refugees back out as quickly as possible. Joseph hoped they would get England, because it was the farthest away from Nazi Germany, safe across the English Channel. But when everything was settled, he and his family were assigned to France. They would be among the third group to disembark, after the Jewish refugees going to Belgium and the Netherlands were delivered but before the last group sailed for Great Britain. The first group left that afternoon. Joseph watched with most of the other passengers as the refugees going to Belgium disembarked. Joseph didn't want to go to Belgium, but he was jealous nonetheless. Like everybody else, he was ready to get off this ship. Think of it, we traveled 10,000 miles on board the St. Louis. One of the men leaving for Belgium told the other passengers as he stepped onto the gangplank only to end up 300 miles from where we started. The line got a laugh, but a sad one. Joseph was all too aware of the long shadow cast by Nazi Germany, and so was everyone else. Still, as long as the Nazis stayed in Germany, they would all be safe, wouldn't they? The next day, 181 passengers disembarked in the city of Rotterdam, even though Holland wouldn't let the St. Louis dock at their pier, just like in Havana. The refugees were taken into town by another ship and escorted by police boats. As they sailed on to France, Joseph wandered the decks. The ship had a strange, empty feeling to it. Half the passengers were gone. The morning they arrived in Boulogne, France, the 288 passengers who were traveling on to England gathered on sea deck to say farewell to Joseph and the others who were disembarking. We're due in England tomorrow, Joseph heard one of them say. June 21st, that's exactly 40 days and 40 nights in a boat. Now, where have I heard that story before? Joseph smiled, remembering the story of Noah from the Torah. But he felt less like Noah and more like Moses, wandering in the desert for 40 years before reaching the promised land. Was that France, the promised land at last? Joseph could only pray it was. He picked up his suitcase in one hand, took Ruthie's hand with his other, and led her and their mother down the ramp into Boulogne. You see, Mama said, I told you somebody would think of something. Now stay close and don't lose your coats. At the bottom of the ramp, Joseph watched as one of the other passengers got down on his hands and knees and kissed the ground. If he hadn't had his hands full, Joseph might have done the same thing. The secretary-general of the French Refugee Assistance Committee officially welcomed them to France, and the porters on the docks moved quickly to carry the passengers' luggage for them, refusing any and all tips offered. Maybe this was the promised land after all. Joseph and his mother and sister spent the night in a hotel in Boulogne, and then they were taken by train to Le Mans, where they were put up in a cheap lodging house. Days passed, and life went on. Joseph's mother got work doing other people's laundry. Ruthie went to kindergarten at last, and Joseph went to school for the first time in months, but because he couldn't speak French, they put him in the first grade. Thirteen years old, a man, and they put him in a classroom with seven-year-olds. It was humiliating. Joseph promised himself he would learn to speak French over the summer or die trying. He never got the chance. Two months later, Germany invaded Poland, touching off a new world war. Eight months after that, Germany invaded France, and Joseph and his mother and sister were on the run again.
1: Isabel, off the coast of Florida... 1994, five days from home. Isabel's mother cried out. It's coming! It's coming! Isabel didn't know if she meant the baby or the Coast Guard ship, or both. Paddle! Amara cried. Isabel paddled harder. She could see the shore, could see the beach umbrellas folded up for the night but still stuck in the sand. Strings of lights... Palm trees, more music, a salsa now. It was all so close. But so was the Coast Guard ship. It bore down on them, its red light flashing, its powerful motor thrumming, water sluicing from its bow. Isabel's heart hammered. It was going to catch them. They weren't going to make it. Lito froze. It's happening again. He said. What? What do you mean? Isabel asked, panting. When I was a young man, I was a policeman. Lito said, his eyes wild. There was a ship. A ship full of Jews from Europe. And we sent them back. I sent them back. Sent them back to die when we could so easily have taken them in. It was all politics, but they were people. Real people. I met them. I knew them by name. I don't understand, Isabel said. What did her grandfather's story have to do with anything? Paddle! Isabel's father cried. The Coast Guard boat was almost on top of them. Don't you see? Lito said. The Jewish people on the ship were seeking asylum, just like us. They needed a place to hide from Hitler, from the Nazis. Manana, we told them. We'll let you in manana. But we never did. Lito was crying now, distraught. We sent them back to Europe and Hitler and the Holocaust. Back to their deaths. How many of them died because we turned them away? Because I was just doing my job. Isabel didn't know what ship her grandfather was talking about, but she knew about the Holocaust from school. The millions of European Jews who had been murdered by the Nazis. And now her grandfather was saying that a ship full of Jewish refugees had come to Cuba when he was a young man? That he had helped to send them away? Mañana. Suddenly, Isabel understood why her grandfather had been whispering that word over and over again for days, why it haunted him. When would the Jews be let into Cuba? Mañana. When would their boat reach America? Mañana. Mañana had never come for the Jewish people on that ship, Isabel realized. Would Mañana never come for Isabel and her family either? A calm came over Lito, as though he'd come to some sort of understanding, some decision. I see it now, Chavela, All of it. The past, the present, the future. All my life, I kept waiting for things to get better. For the bright promise of mañana. But a funny thing happened while I was waiting for the world to change, Chavela. It didn't, because I didn't change it. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Take care of your mother and baby brother for me. Lito, what are you... Don't stop rowing for sure! Isabel's grandfather yelled to everyone else. He kissed Isabel on the cheek, surprising her, and then stood and jumped into the ocean. Lito, Isabel cried. Lito, Papa, Isabel's mother cried. What's he doing? Isabel's grandfather popped back up a few meters away, his head appearing and disappearing in the waves. Lito, Isabel cried. Help, he cried, waving his arms at the Coast Guard ship while at the same time swimming away from it. Help me! he yelled. He jumped in to distract them, Papi realized. They'll come for us first, Señor Castillo said. No, he's in danger of drowning. They have to rescue him, Amara cried. This is our chance. Row, row. Tears rolled down Isabel's cheek where her grandfather had just kissed her goodbye. Lito! She cried again, reaching out for him over the waves. Don't worry about me, Chabela. If there's one thing I'm good at, it's treading water, Lito yelled back. Now row! Manana is yours, my beautiful songbird. Go to Miami and be free! Isabel sobbed. She couldn't paddle, couldn't row. Couldn't do anything but watch as the Coast Guard ship veered away from their little boat and steered toward her grandfather. Went to save him and send him to Guantanamo, back to Cuba.